Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Eula Biss authored an important essay in 2015 called White Debt. She reflected on whiteness in America through the metaphor of buying a house, how surprisingly comfortable debt can be in the right circumstances, and how easily we forget that we don't actually own what we feel we possess. She helpfully opens up words and ideas like complacence, guilt, and something related to privilege called opportunity hoarding. This show has been turned to by many in this moment, and so we are offering it up anew. It is the only on-air conversation I've ever had in which my guest and I had to stop midway and acknowledge how embarrassing it is that we have to have this conversation at all and how inadequate all of our words, yet how urgent that we reach for them nevertheless. Rereading the essay that introduced me to her, I'm struck by sentences that have now revealed their deepest, hardest truths in my community in Minneapolis and across our nation. She wrote, Whiteness is costing me my community. It is the wedge driven between me and my neighbors, between me and other mothers, between me and other workers. Like a bad loan, the kind in which the payments increase over time, the price of whiteness remains hidden behind its promises. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Eula Biss teaches writing at Northwestern University and is best known for her book On Immunity. She's also the author of Notes from No Man's Land, which deals in part with her experience growing up in a multiracial family. We spoke in 2016. I really want to focus, I want to frame our conversation around ideas that you pulled together so compellingly in this article you wrote in the New York Times December into December 2015 called White Debt, Reckoning with What is Owed and What Can Never Be Repaid for Racial Privilege. Mm-hmm. Um I realized as I read, you know, what you've been writing for a long time, you've actually been living and thinking around this subject for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as you wrote in your notes from No Man's Land, it very much centers around themes of race. And and you actually have in your family a cousin who's of mixed race. Um, There are mixed race adoptions in your family. In fact, most of our families, if we trace them fully, we'd probably Mm -hmm. find this. But your mother's longtime boyfriend when you were a teenager was Mm African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is something that I do try to resist the idea that there's something unique or special about the kind of racial makeup of my family, yeah. because I feel like that supports this idea that only people who are racially other have an entryway into yeah. race. And so that's I guess that's my preamble to the answer. Well, um, and the answer yeah. is that I, th- I think you're right. I think most American families are in one way or another somewhat racially complicated. Mine was maybe especially so. And yeah, and my household when I was growing up um, was mixed and my stepsister was black. My stepfather was black. 
So I was exposed, I guess, to people from a lot of different backgrounds. But I don't think that that is in America all that unusual either. And I I find one thing I love about this article you wrote and and about your writing in general is that you interrogate words, just, you know, individual Mm -hmm. words, language that always appears in this conversation that we don't really know how to have. Um, interrogating language as a way of searching for better understanding. So, so that you know, whiteness is is there. And and then one of the other words that you take apart, you say that the word complacence, as you looked at the roots of that word, the etymology of that word, that in fact it did not mean what you expected it to mean. And mm-hmm. that also yeah. was a way to reflect on this. I was looking for a word that would describe a kind of blindness that wasn't even willful, right? right and right. and and when I looked at the meaning of the word complacent, it, it actually looked more intentional than the meaning I was searching for. Because I, I think that that's part of the problem is the the attitude is highly unintentional. It's highly unexamined. Yeah. It's relaxing into your own privilege without even thinking about it. Yeah. And that, again, is one of the privileges of being white, right, mm-hmm. is that you can coast through your experience. You can coast through your life without having to think about what your race means to other people and what you, your existence in a community means to the people around you. Yeah. You cite this essay by Claudia Rankin um, Mm. that she wrote in the New York Times Magazine after the Charleston, the massacre Mm. in the church in Charleston. She wrote, I asked another friend what it's like being the mother of a black son. The condition of black life is mourning, she said bluntly, mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. For her, mourning lived in real time inside her and her son's reality. At any moment, she might lose her reason for living. Though the white liberal imagination likes to feel temporarily bad about black suffering, there really is no mode of empathy that can replicate the daily strain of knowing that as a black person, you can be killed for simply being black. No hands in your pockets, no playing music, no sudden movements, no driving your car, no walking at night, no walking in the day, no turning onto this street, no entering this building, no standing your ground, no standing here, no standing there, no talking back, no playing with toy guns, no living while black. And you wrote, sitting with her essay in front of me, I asked myself what the condition of white life might be. I know that word complacence is something that you reflected on, but I, I wonder how you, you know, how, how would you think about that question right now, what the condition of white life might be, how to start to mm. summarize that or to evoke that. Yeah. Well, I guess my mind, it goes right to the particulars. And and that moment that you read made me think of a meeting that I was recently in at my son's elementary school, Um, I think because of Claudia's friend talking about her son and the, the question of how to keep him safe. And I was at a meeting that was parents discussing how we were going to bring the issue of talking about race to the school community. And there was a huge range of experience in this room. There were parents who had not talked to their children about race at all. And there were parents for whom it was a daily concern. And there was a Kenyan woman there who um, was saying that the way her children looked every day had everything to do with how dangerous she understood it to be to be black in America. And 
Um, she talked about the way she dressed her two children and the way she taught them to talk to strangers and uh, the way she taught them to act in public. And I was thinking about how um, how few of those concerns I had shared, especially around safety, in terms of I haven't spent time training my son in ways of being polite, for instance, because I'm afraid that someone will kill him. And I, that doesn't directly answer your question, but it, it points back towards, you know, the state of white life or the state we're in. Yeah. You know, I live in a placid uh, kind of high-functioning Leave It to Beaver neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota, the kind of neighborhood where you can, you know, I moved here because your kids can get on their bicycle on a Saturday morning and not come back until dinner time. You don't ever worry about them. But uh, right around the corner from my house, like five blocks from my house, Philando Castile was shot. But the fact that we have to talk about this with our kids because somehow, even though we are inhabiting our cities together, we're not having the same experience. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated and disturbing when you start to look at it that way. It is. It really is. And, you know, an article came out in Bloomberg News um, that was making the rounds of conversation in my neighborhood. Um it was an article about Evanston Township High School, um, which is the high school that serves everyone in Evanston. Um, so it's it's necessarily a highly integrated high school. And um, a series of studies, um, one of them done at Stanford and another done within the Evanston school districts, found that in these integrated schools that we have in Evanston, um, black students and white students are not getting the same education. Yeah. And so this is even within the same buildings, with the same teachers, within the same physical space. And I think it's still unclear exactly what the nature of the problem is. But one of the phrases that came up in this article that one of the researchers used a phrase, opportunity hoarding. Um, and they use this phrase to describe um, what white parents do to make sure that their students, that their children are getting more than yeah. other children yeah. are getting. And I really thought about both the opportunity hoarding that I had seen around me and the opportunity hoarding that I myself had engaged in. And, and one example of opportunity hoarding that I'm just remembering from this article was uh, that, for instance, um, something a little over 90 percent of white students at Evanston Township High School have taken at least one advanced placement class. Mm-hmm. And the numbers for African-American students are around 50 percent. So yeah. um, there's many more white students, disproportionate amount of white students ending up in advanced placement classes. And there's probably a lot of factors that feed into that, right? There's parent advocacy. There's probably some racial bias going on on the part of the school. There's there's probably dozens of different factors. But I think the reason that that term opportunity hoarding spoke to me is I thought, well, well, that's something I can control for. Yeah. Like that's something I can watch in my own behavior. And that's something that I could have conversations with my neighbors around and how we're treating the opportunities that are available to our, our children and whether we're ensuring that those opportunities are available to all the children in our community. And don't you think also... 
uh, I mean that's that's a kind of it's a it's an unsettling phrase opportunity hoarding but, yeah but it oh, also deeply, yeah. right and you know when it comes to our children we're so I mean there's such a fierce drive that we have right to give them the best to do, right mm-hmm. to make things possible for them it doesn't even it's not uh, I think consciously about wanting them to flourish at the expense of someone else but but what you're pointing out and what that language makes clear is that in fact that is what happens and and maybe I'm wrong that, no, that it's and always I think unconscious. That that, yeah, and that especially when we're talking about limited resources. Right. If those limited resources are hoarded, it necessarily means somebody isn't getting them. Yeah. So, you know, this thinking got refreshed for me when I bought a house here in Evanston. And, and buying a house and getting a mortgage inspired me to do a little bit of research into housing laws and the history of redlining in my community and um, and the history of housing discrimination and mortgage discrimination in Chicago. And uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written really beautifully about this, and to, especially in his piece, um, the case for reparations. He he very elegantly lays out a history of legalized housing discrimination. And some of his examples, his particulars come from Chicago. And when you look at that history, you can see a highly intentional and entirely legal history of white people hoarding both real estate and financial resources like mortgages um, yeah. at the expense of other people. And and even, you know, in the case of predatory lending, there's people making money at the expense of African-American families who who lose their houses because of the the unfair loans that they've been given, the, the poor terms of lending. So buying a house was another moment where I felt that I was kind of forced to reflect on on how I was benefiting personally from a long history of racist policies in my country. And this is On Being. Today I'm with the writer Eula Biss, and we're talking about whiteness. Yeah, I was just speaking with Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote mm. The Warmth of Other mm-hmm. Suns, and very much to that point, you know, she talks about when there was this exodus of you know, six million African Americans in the 20th century from the South to the North. Mm-hmm. They were still, you know, they, they could only live in certain places and those certain places, you know, turn out to now be our inner cities um, mm-hmm. and were charged exorbitant rates because they had no choice. It wasn't. It wasn't mm-hmm. um, and that is mm-hmm. built in. That is in the DNA of our of our of our cities. You're right. And I mean, you've started that's the buying of the house was kind of the image that you worked with in this. New York Times piece of in mm-hmm. the and really delving into the meaning of debt and the experience of debt. Yeah. And yeah, moral, moral and I do debt think, as well. Yeah, the moral debt, you know, 
what really broke that piece open, I knew for a long time that I wanted to write about um, the feelings I was having around uh, buying and owning a house and, and getting a mortgage. But what broke that piece open was a conversation with my neighbors who had lived in Germany. And uh, one of my neighbors mentioned to me that the word for debt in German is also the word for guilt. And uh, kind of, you know, that that was very illuminating for me. And yeah. I have for a long time wanted to think about white guilt in a way that could be productive, um, you know, both personally productive, but also socially and politically productive. It's a really, as a term, white guilt is pretty poisonous. Or even the notion of white privilege. Well, what I experience, you know, what we're very attentive to editorially, when we put shows on the air around race, Mm -hmm. around these issues that you could, you know, you want people to listen. And I personally don't think people get paralyzed or turn away because they don't care. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. it's true that sometimes Mm -hmm. they don't care, but there's a paralysis that sets in, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. about, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to make it better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one reason, uh, you know, one doesn't put guilt in a in a show title. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you make a really interesting I think you're arguing for saying not letting guilt be a bad word. Kind of honoring yeah. the fact that you wrote, why not imagine guilt as a prod, a goad, an impetus to action? Isn't guilt an essential cog in the machinery of the conscience? Maybe mm. we should try to let this word in welcome this word in this conversation about race like i honestly think we we talk about race when we talk about how we don't know how to talk about it i mean it's not even really mm-hmm. like we do have a national conversation about race and no, maybe because no. we don't let the word guilt in i mean maybe that's mm-hmm. this is important yeah and i do think you know com- circling it back to this question of you know what's the state of white life yeah i do think the state of white life is that we're living in a house we believe we own, but that we've never paid off. I also think that maybe, you know, maybe the language that people could find more palatable, right? It would be this, this word responsibility, (laughs) you know, this, this word that we associate with adulthood and, um, (laughs) and drudgery, but that's, that's another coloration of guilt, right? Is that there's a, there's that meaning of the word guilt that gestures at responsibility. Um, because I am culpable for this, I am now responsible. Culpable for, for and benefiting from, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And benefiting from, you know, I think a lot of people want to wash their hands because the benefit has been indirect, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's but, in a lot of cases the culpability can feel indirect too, but mm-hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't make it right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, I have, I have the unusual situation of of living in a house. The house that that we bought here in Evanston has an identical twin that's right next door to it. So we live in a little brick bungalow that is right next door to an identical brick bungalow. Mm. And these two brick bungalows were built by brothers. And um, neither of those brothers live in the houses anymore. But our next door neighbor is an African-American man who's been living in his house since I was born. Um, 
And so we have, we're a white family living in a house that's identical to the house of the black family next door, um, which has given me some occasions for, for reflection on the, the differences in our lives and the ways that we have or have not benefited from the systemic racism about, around us. So one example of that is um, the, before we moved into our house, the previous owner did a major renovation of the attic of this little bungalow. And um, and I was describing this renovation to my next door neighbor over the fence. And he said, I'd love to do something like that to my attic. I would love to do it. Um, I, I want so much to to renovate our attic. I always have wanted to. And he said, but, um, but I'm never going to have the money for that. And um, and this is a man who's worked his whole life. Um, he's worked for the post office for longer than I've been alive. Yeah. Um, and he mentioned to me in an offhand way, he said, you know, I have a lot of family members who are in jail and who are in prison. And yeah. that's one of the draws on us financially is yeah. supporting the right, families right. of people who can't work. And so that's just one tiny window, right, into how the, the criminalization of black life is a draw financially on people who are not engaging in any activity, right, who have never been accused of a crime, never, yeah. um, never put in jail, never And then who can't renovate their, their addicts to increase the price of their property and all of that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, and my neighbor left off this conversation. We were talking, and he left off by saying, I guess God just didn't want me to be rich, mm-hmm. you know, and— and I said, I don't think it's God, actually. <laughs> After a short break, more with Eulipus. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every conversation I have on the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn how their grantees are helping to address the coronavirus crisis at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're talking about whiteness, an awkward, inadequate, and urgent conversation. I'm with the author Eula Biss, who wrote the important essay, White Debt. I interviewed her in November 2016, and her insights feel prescient and useful now. It feels so good to talk about this. Mm. Um... There's a sentence you had in the, the white debt piece. I have written and erased a hundred sentences here, mm. trying and failing to articulate something that I can sense but not yet speak. And, you know, I may be reading into this, but um, the truth is this is also fraught. And there are so many things kind of coming to the surface that in part feel very shocking, whether they should be shocking or not you know, violence and kind of seeing the roots of things we haven't seen have 
I think one reason I appreciate that you work with language because language itself is so fraught and the wrong mm. word can be, uh, you know, taken as an offense, mm-hmm. even though we're reckless with other words. Right, right. Yeah, I do. I think that this is is a major problem for us in terms of talking about race. And as attentive as I am to language and as, as sensitive as I am to it as, as a writer and as much as I believe that that insight can be found or lost through language, I do think that when it comes to racism, we pay too much attention to language and we, we give language a power that mm. I don't believe it actually has. Mm. When, in fact, I think there are many graver actions that are happening that happen without anyone ever saying anything offensive. Mm, um, right. And that a lot of our policing of offensive language it's not that that isn't unimportant. It's not that people should be allowed to say whatever they want. But I feel that there's extra energy put into that policing because we aren't sure how to address the real problems mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and how to address the kind of systemic racism that happens without anyone ever saying anything that would look to us like racism. Mm. And I think that this is part of how we're hobbling ourselves around um, coming to kind of broader and more advanced understandings around what's going on with race. And, and about that, how we live together as opposed to just how we talk together, how we speak together. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we mm-hmm. can't, I think if you can't talk about something, you can't think about something. Mm. And I think I've worked with students who could barely let themselves think. They were so scared of thinking the wrong thing. Yeah, And so... I don't want to be misunderstood as making an argument for offensive language, Mm -hmm. but I guess the argument that I'm making is um, that I think that we need a cultural atmosphere where we understand where the crimes are happening, right? And Mm -hmm. that that many of the crimes are not in the arena of language, but that we need to be able to stumble through imperfect language and imperfect sentences in order to find our way to where the crimes are happening. Mm. I have a friend who's um, in her late 70s, and she was a professor, is a a professor, and uh, she told me a story about in the mid-60s when civil rights was happening. um, She had a, a close friend who was also... A, a colleague, a fellow academic who was African-American, and that they had a pact that, mm-hmm. or, or, or that Pauline had a, a kind of an agreement with her that um, she would bounce things off her that she was going to say or write and say, is this racist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is, does this work? Is this offensive? And um, and I I love that story. Uh, because it was it was self correction in the context of a relationship, and she was safe yeah. enough, right, to ask yeah. to be corrected, as opposed to um, mm-hmm. so worried about getting something wrong that she wouldn't say anything. And I feel like we've we've had this illusion here in our twenty first century that we're way past that, right? Like we should mm-hmm. know what the wrong word would be, or what the offensive thought would be, mm-hmm. or what the mm-hmm. what the egregious. Uh, uh, omission would be, and we don't. 
you know. Right. I mean, sadly, right. we should, but we don't. And um, mm-hmm. I've wished, you know, what if we could each have, have a friendship like that, uh, mm-hmm. a, a yeah. safe space where we could air and ask to be have it pointed out lovingly uh, so that we could get it mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I and you know this is another way in which I really, really strongly believe that um, you know for all the ways that white people benefit materially from racism, mm-hmm. that we're very damaged by it, and I think that this is one of the ways in which we're damaged, and um, the racist structures of our society cut us off from close friendships with people of color, yeah. and that doesn't mean we don't have them, right? But there's many ways in which we're alienated from each other, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things we lose, right? That kind of productive conversation that can move a person's thinking forward and um, can expand a, a person's not just their, you know, acceptable vocabulary, yeah. but also their real understanding. Yeah, their understanding and their presence in the world, their ability to mm-hmm. move forward. It's also, you know, another very striking thing about this moment we inhabit is we've, we're aware of all this unfinished business, you know, these things we actually thought we'd made so much progress on, but also seeing full circle that the legacy of whiteness is now costing white people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. foreclosure crisis or the opiate mm-hmm. addiction or the mm-hmm. the white pain in the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which a lot of what happened to people of color is now afflicting white people as well. Like these systems didn't stay closed. Mm-hmm. The structures didn't mm-hmm. stay closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think where I see it is in fractured alliances. So these disaffected, poor white people see themselves as white before they understand themselves as poor, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a potentially very powerful alliance um, between poor whites and poor blacks in our country. Mm -hmm. And that alliance has been undermined. Mm Mm-hmm. And prevents flourishing, right? It prevents, um, yeah, would be you know, life-giving to, for those fractures to soften and fall away. Yeah, and ultimately, I think who it benefits is a very tiny, tiny little segment of the society. I guess mm-hmm. we're really, you know, this is another way of talking about the 1%, right? Mm-hmm. But part of how we've empowered the 1% is by allowing other people to think that by virtue of their race, they might have access to the 1%. Right. Um, that all they need to do is work hard enough and try hard enough and be good enough and that they might get to belong. Or their children point. might get to belong at some Or their point. children mm-hmm. might, yeah. You know, I want to I come back to raising our children and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's a primary place we can... Walk with this differently. Um, mm-hmm. You write very beautifully about, I mean, if you've written in many ways about, you know, raising your son, the ordinary joys of life. You did mention a while ago how you wrote in that Times piece on White Dad about, I think this must be what you were talking about, what somebody took exception to, that mm-hmm. when your son was four, um, he brought home a library book about the slaves who built the White House. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read this. It's, I, I didn't tell him sure. that slaves once accounted for more wealth than all the industry in this country combined, or that slaves were, as ta Coates writes, the down payment on this country's independence, or that freed slaves became, after the Civil War, this country's second mortgage. Nonetheless, my overview of slavery and Jim Crow left my son worried about what it meant to be white, what legacy he had inherited. I don't want to be on this team, he said, with his head in his hands. You might be stuck on this team, I told him, but you don't have to play by its rules. Yeah. And that, you know, that you don't have to play by its rules part is, of course, easier said than done. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. And I think that that, for me, is an ongoing parenting challenge, but it's also a challenge for me as an adult living an adult life yeah. is where and when do I do I refuse the rules, right? Where and when do I defy expectations um, that are written into the social code? I, for me, it's tricky because rules are so important, right, for both parenting and for education, right? So our children's lives are little nets of rules. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it's it's actually a pretty complicated, nuanced conversation to talk about how do you discern whether a rule is unjust or not, and and when do you choose to violate it? You know, you were talking a little while ago about the study about high schools and AP classes. So mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were talking about that, you know, my son went to a great big urban high school in St. Paul, and... We liked that about it, that it was a big urban high school and it was diverse. Um, but an African Amer- a new friend of mine who's African-American talked about taking his son to visit that school and mm-hmm. being there at lunchtime. And being there at lunchtime and seeing this high school cafeteria where kids, you know, where kids, where you have all these high school kids being high school kids and they're laughing and they're talking and it was very mixed. Um, and then the bell rings and the white kids head up the stairs to the AP and uh, IB classes, and mm-hmm. hardly any black kids. And so mm-hmm. you know, so you have this stark segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what feels so shameful to me is that I, I mean, my son has graduated now, and he had graduated by the point that I heard this story, and I. I knew that there wasn't that there was a segregation going on that I didn't understand and I didn't like, but I didn't mm-hmm. like why it is our job, right? As white parents, as much as it's the job of the parents of the kids of color to mm-hmm. not let this continue. Right. Yes. Yeah, and that's I I've been very inspired by a, a number of things um that I've read in in a journal that's that's no longer being published called Race Trader. And this was published by um, Noel Ignatiev, the author of How the Irish Became White, and John Garvey uh, published this journal for years. And one of the stories I read in there was about um, a group of parents who protested the selection processes in their school that produced a gifted program in a school that was majority black. Uh, the gifted program was majority white, yeah. and so um, so white parents protested this, saying, "This this can't possibly be the case, right? Not 
all the gifted children in this school can be white. So there must be a problem with how we're deciding who gets into the gifted program. There must be something wrong here. And I do think that that's that's our job, right, as as white parents is to to see that and know it can't be true. And then to try to – whatever that system is that's producing – a gifted program that is um, entirely white at a school that's mostly black to dismantle that system. Yeah. Again, easier said than done. Um, but But I do think that there are, in these particular cases... There are things that can be done if people say we won't have this. Um, I was also really inspired by a story that I heard on public radio here in Chicago a couple years ago about a group of students at a very um, wealthy public school in Lincoln Park. And these students were, um, many of them were white students who were protesting the fact that their school was going to get a major renovation that would cost a lot of money. Um, And they were protesting on the grounds that they didn't think their school was the most in need of the public schools in the city. Mm. And they thought that it was unjust that city funds would be going towards their school when there were schools that didn't have enough textbooks to go around. And I also found that story quite exciting and thought, okay, we're getting somewhere here. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the writer Eula Biss, and we're talking about whiteness. As you're out there talking about this, and as you've gotten a reaction to the white debt piece, um, um, is there a difference in how, like, how do people of color respond? Do you hear from non-white people about this thinking? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I'm not sure this is answering your question, but I guess one of the things that surprised me in terms of response to my own work was that for the most part, my writing about race did not seem to make a lot of people very upset. And that worried me a little bit, actually, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. And I actually, you know, I, I, I think that's somewhat true, especially if if you're a writer in this subject matter, um, you're probably not doing your job unless people are pissed off and Gosh, angry. But I mean, that that's a diagnosis of a problem, isn't it? I mean, I, I wonder if... You're just being kind of straight. You're saying, let's talk about whiteness. You're um, Mm -hmm, framing mm -hmm. the question a little differently. Gosh, we've got to have a place for speaking honestly that is not that controversial, even if it's not everybody's experience. And yeah, so I, I don't know. One of the things I've observed in education, and this is something we, I don't feel like it's talked about a lot, is that learning can be really, really upsetting. Mm. And I do think that um, that it's fair to expect that that in a conversation that's as difficult as this, there will be flashes of defensiveness, of anger, of um, 
of bitterness, of ferocious resentment, yeah. um, and that I guess the space has to contain that. Mm. Um, There's something hopeful about about taking in fury as a function of learning. I actually, you know, maybe it's because I have a terrible temper myself, mm, yeah. but I actually, I'm inclined to embrace fury yeah, yeah. Um, in, you know, not just in an academic setting, but in, you know, in, in a conversation in general and in, yeah. in any essential conversation, I think probably has the potential to set off some anger. Mm. Oh, so, so, you know, we live in this we also another another aspect of this moment is that I hear language and not just language but intentions surfacing. You know, words mm-hmm. like truth and reconciliation commissions for race and um, um, mercy. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. using words like mercy in mm-hmm. conversations about public policy words like redemption i feel are coming yeah. in and you you have reflected on and i and i feel like this is a new opening you know to say how do we live redemptively reparatively mm-hmm. rather than yeah. destructively what does that look like how does it start and again with you and i are speaking as two white people that mm-hmm. we have to craft and you know kind of discover that new way of living, kind of one life and one action at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, though, you know, I, f- I find this super embarrassing to talk out loud about, really. Yeah. like no. no, it feels really scary, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm like already pre-mortified about any of this being on the air, on the radio, um, as much as like, I, I think I'm allowing this embarrassment to just wash over me because I still like really deeply fundamentally believe in bumbling your way through a conversation about this subject because I think it is so important. We just cannot be silent right, because on this it's subject. so inadequate. Is what you're saying? <laughs> it's very inadequate. Yeah. yeah, I feel like and and I also you know as we talk, I just feel super aware of my own like partial understanding, you know, and mm-hmm. and I, I feel like I'm constantly touching the the edges of my own right. comprehension. Yeah. And I'm aware that uh that I'm really not getting it all. And um so yeah, so it feels just very uncomfortable mm-hmm. um and um and intensely mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> But I think to your point also, we need to also allow ourselves to have inadequate conversations yeah. and not think that you, we have to begin by getting it right or perfect or complete right. because right. it's not possible. As you said, we're talking about generation upon generation and yeah. things that have been conscious and unconscious, and we don't know how much we carry around unconsciously. That's something we're learning about yeah. ourselves. Yeah. You know, the very first question my son ever asked me about race it wasn't that long after he started talking, so he was he was somewhere between two and three, and he asked me. I was anticipating a question like this, um, but I did not anticipate the form it took. He asked me why a friend of his had brown skin, and I was expecting a question like that. But what was surprising was that f- the friend he asked about was someone who uh, who would be considered white. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think her background is um, Romanian, mm-hmm. but uh, but she's her features are European, and she she moves through the world as a white person, and so does her mother. But her skin is in fact darker than the skin of a number of other people we knew who would be classified as black. So the very first question my son asked me about race was much more complicated than the question I'd been anticipating. (laughs) Um, What he was asking me is, why is this person with dark skin called white when there's people with lighter skin who we call black? Mm. Um, Mm. What he was really getting at is a question that went straight to the inconsistencies in how we define race in this country, yeah. right? And um, and some of the absurdity of it. Some of the absurdity of it. Mm-hmm. Somewhere you pose these two questions together, or these two these two ideas: the things we do to each other out of fear, the things mm-hmm. we owe each other. Mm-hmm. Say a little mm-hmm. bit more about what would be on your list of the things we owe each other. Mm. Um, well, again, I think this, this is in some ways very, you know, very personal for me, um, you know, because I, I do ask this question of myself for myself all the time. Mm. Um, but, but one, again, one of my kind of private conclusions for my own self, um, and this has to do with fear, but it's it's slightly different, is that I do feel that we owe each other trust until that trust is broken. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that can be, in practice, incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. We live in a political climate and a political atmosphere that makes trust extremely difficult and it can even seem quite foolish actually to to trust in this particular climate um and i think i think there's people who would disagree with me on this and and probably rightly so i'm i guess that's just my way of saying that i'm not entirely sure that what i'm saying is right i'm i'm maybe even partly convinced i'm wrong on this but it's still (laughs) something that i've come to that is important to me is uh, that in my everyday interactions with other people, I feel that trust is something of a radical act. Mm-hmm. And I um, I go to to great efforts to trust the people around me. Um, and do you find that that is a risk that has rewards, is to talk about the, the paradigm before? I mean, do you find that many people in situations rise to that occasion, that it's worth it for you to go through the erring on the side of trust for me it has been i for me that's it's it's a rewarding way to live that doesn't mean that people haven't disappointed me and broken my trust mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but it, it it tends when that happens to me it intends to be in situations where i never would have anticipated it you know and mm-hmm. it, i feel like this this does come back to the question of fear i think there's some people who feel that nurturing their own fear will will um will be a balm against danger if mm-hmm. if you just mm-hmm. feel fearful enough mm-hmm. and often enough you'll save yourself from the dangers of the world and I don't think that's true. I think you get hurt either way. So you, you <laughs> right. either, you know, you get to live as a suspicious, wary person 
paranoid who gets hurt or you get to live as someone who trusts other people and gets hurt. Mm. It's, mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And <laughs> uplifting conclusion. Yeah. And no, and in this term, in this, in this context of, of whiteness, um, you know, what, what do we owe as, as white people? You know, this is a question that I do, again, I, I'm asking myself all the time and mm-hmm. trying to answer in actually very concrete ways. And my answer is, again, constantly evolving and constantly shifting. Um, but I, I do feel that that I owe action to the communities that I'm a part of. And those communities are various and overlapping. But for instance, the whole reason I was in a meeting at my son's school to be involved in making race something that we're talking about in the schools and with children and with teachers and when we're when we're doing hiring and and when we're inviting guests to speak. And, um, you know, and that's something I fail on, too. And I feel that I also owe it to my neighbors not to reduce them to symbols, right? Um, To see them as people Mm -hmm. and not as symbols or ideas or shorthand for an experience that we assume is shared and may not be shared. teaches writing at Northwestern University. Her books include On Immunity and Inoculation and Notes from No Man's Land, American Essays. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including The New York Times and Harper's Magazine. Being project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Dordal, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Colleen Sheck, Christiane Wartell, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, and Jale Akavan. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org, Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality, supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. 
Humanity United, Advancing Human Dignity at Home and Around the World. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.